0: Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks.
1: Welcome to UCI Law Talks. Today we're talking about mass incarceration, a topic rising higher and higher in national consciousness, and specifically about the impact of increasing incarceration of women. I'm talking to Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor of Law here at UCI and Director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy. She's the author of too many scholarly articles to count, but most relevant to our discussion today is Invisible Women, Mass Incarceration's Forgotten Casualties, forthcoming in the Texas Law Review. Uh, Welcome, uh, Michelle, and thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm being interviewed here by Mr. New York Times, so it's my pleasure. (laughs) So I want to start by asking you, what drew you to the topic? That's such a great question, Jonathan. I have to say that um, it wasn't because I'm a criminal law scholar at all. I've actually come to this field uh, through my work in biotechnology and science. I thought it was very curious um, 10 years ago, or, or a little bit more, as I was researching assisted reproductive technology. Uh, it it was clear to me that there were very few states legislating in the area, and the federal government only had one law related to assisted reproduction. But what I found interesting and began to write about and talk about, and I guess this is more like 15 years ago, really, gosh, um, was that there were really high incidences of um, cognitive delays, hearing impairments, uh, multiple births, Uh, low birth weight babies, and I found it to be a very interesting space, given that there was no legislation and nobody really talking about those issues. And yet, uh, in the shadows, what I saw were um, many prosecutions of poor women, uh, primarily women of color, uh, because they had had miscarriages or a stillbirth. And I thought, wow, that's interesting considering that within the realm of assisted reproductive technology, the failure rate is about 70%. It's like 70% of miscarriages and nobody's sort of claiming that those women did anything wrong or that they shouldn't be doing that. And it raised issues about where the state gets involved and where it doesn't. But just seeing that gap made me want to learn more about these prosecutions and why there were women who were beginning to take plea deals of nine years, 12 years, 20 years after having a miscarriage. And it said a lot about the misapplication of science and the politicization of science. And so that's what got me involved.
1: Can you say a little bit about what's special, and I think you're already alluding to it already, but the about the situation of women in prison or the, the context, right, for women in prison?
0: Well, for me, this started off with looking at this within the context of mothering and reproduction. And if one looks in those spaces, then we have to dig a little bit deeper and think about the fact that Uh, Reproduction has been a very politicized state and status um, within the United States, uh, dating back to slavery and women being treated as chattel, but not just slave women treated as chattel. Uh, Within the context of the law, conversion laws meaning—or coverture laws, excuse me, meaning that women were the property of their husbands. And then if we fast-forwarded from there, early eugenics laws and practices in the United States— where states legislated that uh, some women uh, and men too could be sterilized so that they would never give birth because we didn't want those kinds of people ever being able to reproduce in the United States, and our Supreme Court backing that in Buck v. Bell in 1927, where Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes says that three generations of imbeciles are enough. And it's a fascinating case that involves a 16-year-old girl who happens to be white, who's raped and becomes pregnant. And the state of Virginia says, well, she's unfit. And she's unfit because she has a mother who's poor, and she has a mother who is an alcoholic and who is a prostitute. People like this should never be allowed to reproduce. And so with that backdrop, then combined with what we began to see in the 1980s and 90s with these prosecutions, then it struck me that this is a really important space for us to pay attention to. But what I found increasingly disturbing is that when we talk about mass incarceration, we generally talk only about men. We don't focus on women. So what we know is the male story, which is quite troubling in in its own right, right, which is that the U.S. incarcerates more people than anywhere else in the world, that 25 percent of the world's population that's imprisoned happen to be imprisoned in the United States. These are Americans that we're putting in jail, Uh, that the prison industrial complex is no longer kind of myth-making or what people might say is just simply conspiracy theory we understand how real it is but what's fascinating with all of that Jonathan is that the same applies to women and we just don't know right so that the U.S. incarcerates more women than anywhere else in the world the U.S. incarcerates more women than in Russia China India combining, you can toss in Thailand if you want to toss in Brazil, and we still incarcerate by number and percentage more than in all of those countries combined. Uh, we incarcerate so many women that in some states they think it's a progressive policy to allow children to be born in and grow up in jail with their mothers. We now have more than half a million children who are in foster care and for whom this is not a temporary placement, but that they spend the rest of their lives there because their mothers, who were their primary caretakers, have taken these plea deals that are 10, 15, and 20 years. And so these kids miss out having their mothers with them for all that period of time. And the one last point that I'll add to this is that Two-thirds of these people are nonviolent offenders. So it's not even that we can say, well, we've gotten those people off the streets who are going to harm us, who are going to cause us some sort of pain, who are going to injure us. No. Two-thirds of these women, they're in for petty crimes or in jail because uh, they used drugs or maybe gave drugs to somebody else. Or they're there because they've written bad checks. So you see a lot that's connected with their economic status as a gateway to women being in prison.
1: This is fascinating because I thought you were, you were going to suggest before we spoke that this is a relatively recent phenomenon. But you have situated this in a much larger historical context.
0: Yes, well, you know, I, I think it's really important that we understand the roots of so much of this, right? So our you know some people, politicians now on the right and left are saying this is a, a kind of problem today that we have to resolve. but I think that we can track this back in various eras. We can track this back to our nation's failed drug war. It's interesting that the rate of addiction in the United States, has basically remained the same through the nineteen fifties and sixties through today but the significant difference has been how we incarcerate It's off the chart literally i mean as it's it's, it's it's a very steep incline and not just who we arrest, but it is also and and largely people of color there. Uh, but also the amount of money that we've spent on this. I mean, I think that the reason why this has become a unifying issue between Republicans and Democrats, Democrats, is that they now you know realize on both sides of the aisles we can't afford it. Right? We have overcrowding jails. The conditions behind our prison walls are just absolutely horrific. Um, At a summit that we have coming up, a woman by the name of Sue Allen Allen uh, will be our keynote speaker. She's the founder and executive director of an organization called Gina's Team. Now, Gina's Team is named for a person who was her cellmate. Sue Ellen was in prison for seven years. But Gina died at 25, nearly in Sue Ellen's arm. And I say nearly in Sue Ellen's arms because uh, when she finally received care three days before her death, it was Sue Ellen who was literally holding her in in her arms, begging for medical attention. She had been begging for months for Gina to get medical attention. Uh, Gina had complained of headaches, um, the inability to eat, Um, of the inability to chew her food. And not just Sue Ellen had complained about this, so had other inmates. But they were threatened with solitary confinement. And finally on the day in which Gina was taken to get medical care, she lapsed into a coma. And then she died three days later. She had undiagnosed leukemia. Gina was only 25 years old. And she was a mother. She was a nonviolent offender. And Gina's story, rather than being isolated, sadly, tragically, is too symbolic of what is actually happening in prisons throughout the United States.
1: So a big part of what makes this crisis, it sounds like I'm right to call it a crisis, what makes it different um, is the collateral consequences, right? The, the the indirect, if you will, victims of the incarceration of women.
0: Yes, and that is such a brilliant way in which, which you've posed this. Yes, there are the collateral consequences that seep out throughout our society, and they impact children. Uh, One of our colleagues here at UCI, uh, Kristen Turney, has just done amazing work in this regard. And she's a sociologist, and she focuses on families and children and the impacts of prison and children's lives. And what she has been able to confirm is what families have been saying and trying to bring attention to, and that is, Um, incarceration's impact on children is actually worse than a child experiencing a parent's death. And that's really quite profound as she studies these children. And she says it's not just the physical impact. uh, It happens to be the mental and emotional impact worse than death. Now, when you think about the gross disparities in that regard of the children, primarily African-American children and Latino children, who grow up with their parents in prison, and that for these children, their emotional status is one that's worse than experiencing a parent's death. We have to think about why it is that we have implemented these policies, how they're working, and what we do to get out of this rabbit hole.
1: You alluded to the coming summit, and I want to jump ahead to ask you about that, because it sounds like one of your goals there is to develop some concrete policy proposals, ways to address these, these uh, I don't want to call them side effects, but collateral effects.
0: Sure, yes, these, these harms, these injuries that have resulted from failed policy. And I think it's important that uh, we recognize that we're in a space that, one, um, we see consensus on this, that our drug war, those policies uh, were inconsistent, they were disparate, Uh, The sentencing guidelines that made distinctions between crystallized cocaine and powdered cocaine um, had such incredibly negative consequences. We have to acknowledge that. And we also have to put some other facts on the table, too, and that's what will happen at the summit on September the 22nd um, with just such wonderful people who are, coming in to speak to these issues. One of them is a judge who was one of the first judges in the country to call out uh, the disparate uh, sentencing in our sentencing guidelines as being unconstitutional. Uh, as as uh, having racial impacts, and that's Judge Pamela Alexander. And she actually put at risk, at the time in which she did that, she was being considered for a federal position, and she was the youngest person to ever be on the bench in the state of Minnesota, and the first uh, African American, and she put at risk... Um, ascendancy that was almost guaranteed during the Clinton administration. We also have Dr. Claire Coles from Emory um, University, and she was blacklisted uh, during the 1980s and 90s because her research had been showing that there was no such thing as a crack baby. Um, That was a very popular mythology that was in the media. It was a way that galvanized forces, these forces that wanted to blame uh, the failures of our economy on women who were on welfare uh, and at the same time to suggest that if uh, black kids weren't doing well in school, it was because of their mothers. Well, in her research lab, She was able to show fetal impacts associated with alcohol, with tobacco and whatnot. And she had been saying, it's just not true what's being purported in the media with regard to uh, crack and cocaine. And she's going to be coming and joining us. uh, George Woods, Dr. George Woods, the president of the International Academy of Law and Mental Health, and so many others. And and I'm really grateful that we just have this incredibly strong group of people who are going to be joining us for an afternoon. It's a summit. It's not a full-day symposium. They're getting in, diving in, and telling us what we need to know and how we need to move forward on these issues.
1: And the summit will be available on the web for people who want to who are unable to attend but, but want to tune in.
0: Absolutely. And that's really important too. We really want to make this accessible to people across the country.
1: Are there- Specific policy changes you have in mind from having studied this issue that you would want adopted?
0: Well, I'm glad that you raised that because I think it's really important that we look at these issues um, not concentrated exclusively on women, but even the impacts that are happening with regard to girls. So this summer, we uh, engaged in a research study uh, that is continuing. It's a 50 state survey looking at uh, juvenile detention. And there too, the the findings are just absolutely uh, stunning and problematic, where you find in uh, states where there's very low uh, African American or Latino population, you find disparately high rates of girls incarcerated in juvenile detention. Um, You also find um, high rates of suspensions that are based on race and that are disparate, and also expulsions as well. And so as we pay attention to this, I think it's really important that we look at what's happening in terms of school policy. And one other area that we tend not to think about is also the way in which we operationalize trade in the United States as well. Where are the jobs? When we think about mass incarceration and we think about how people are treated behind bars, a few things come to mind that I want to be really succinct about. One happens to be 50 years ago, no one would advocate for a prison to be literally in their backyard or in their neighborhood. Nobody would. Nobody wanted that. Why is it today that that's one of the chief lobbying areas? Where people want these prisons in their backyards, they want them in their rural communities, they know that these prisons mean jobs. A second thing that we want to pay attention to happens to be law enforcement. We have incentivized the stopping and the harassing of people as they drive, as they go to work, as they go to school. As Sandra Bland, right? Yeah, you know, Why is she stopped? Right? It, police are told issue a certain amount of tickets a day. I and mean, this means a certain level of confrontation that is built in to escalate. You have to escalate it in order to meet your quota. And then what does that mean when the people who are getting these jobs are people who've come back from war, who've been situated to respond to things as a soldier rather than an officer of the peace? And then what do these things mean when we think about women's health conditions behind bars? No one bothers to pay attention to breast cancer behind bars. People are stunned when I mention that and they say, oh, yes, I guess women do get breast cancer and they're behind bars or ovarian cancer or cervical cancer or rape or pregnancy, So I think for that day and for conversations to come, there's so much for us to put on the table that's not just simply about the raw numbers, but also impact all of these other categories and, of course, kids too. And if I could just take one quick moment, and that is to say that in foster care, kids who age out of foster care, the statistics are horrific, incredibly high rates of homelessness over 70%. Pregnancy, incarceration, we're not doing a good job at any end of this.
1: Hearing you talk about this, I find myself wondering why hasn't this issue gotten more attention in recent years? And I just want to throw out a statistic that you've, you've used uh, in, uh, I think it was the Huffington Post article, um, that the number of women in prison has increased by 800% between 1997 and 2007 and that's double the rate for men. Why hasn't this been on the radar screen before?
0: That's that's a great question. I mean, and I think part of it is because we're overwhelmed about male incarceration. I think that there is something to be said about the narrative of bad mothers and bad girls, right? They must have done something to put themselves there. I think it also says something about where we've devoted energy within women's movements. Uh, Much of the energy has been put in smart places about protecting reproductive rights, but we have to realize, even within those spaces, that there are many different forces that are encountering women's lives, and we have to be nimble and mindful about all of those different kinds of spaces. For example, when I talk about pregnancy as being one of the spaces in which women are actually uh, policed, organizations that work on reproductive rights have long ignored that. It's only recently that they're beginning to pay attention to this. But but these issues date back in this most recent wave to the 1980s. So for the last 30, 40 years, we've missed the opportunity to say, hey, why is that? Why is it that a woman like Regina McKnight, after simply having a miscarriage, ends up having to take a plea deal. Why is it that Rennie Gibbs in Mississippi, who's 15 years old, is charged with aggravated murder for having a stillbirth? If organizations were bothering to spend time saying, we care about those issues too, and we care about those women too, and that our concerns are not just about protecting and preserving a right to terminate a pregnancy, but it's also a concern about women at every stage of their reproduction, I think that we might not have seen so much that we have been seeing, but now that we know this, I say let's move forward in proactive ways because none of this is good for our society, what we've been doing.
1: It's a great moment in the sense that there's all this attention to mass incarceration's effects in other contexts, and and it sounds as though this is an intersectional moment to bring attention to this issue.
0: Yes, and you're so brilliant for bringing it up in that way. Yes, absolutely. It is an intersectional moment where we can begin to see how interest can converge and collide along the, the spaces of race of sex and even sexual orientation. I suppose a very important point to include here um, as we begin to wrap up is that um, for those who are transgendered and those who are gay These, two are spaces where there is very intensive policing. And the kind of policing there is incredibly pernicious because a lot of it leads to solitary confinement under the guise of somehow protecting those populations. And that's no protection whatsoever.
1: Michelle, there is so much to cover in this topic. I had not even realized until we started. Um, But I'm afraid we have to wrap up. My general wrap-up question is always, is there anything else that I should be asking?
0: Well, I would just say that I'm so grateful to be on with you. It's such an honor uh, to to be with you, particularly given your uh, journalistic record. So uh, so I'm just grateful, and I hope that uh, that people will tune in to my writings about this uh, issue uh, if they have the opportunity uh, to either come to our summit or else tune in on the website and I'm just really grateful to be able to talk about this issue with you.
1: Thank you so much for joining us, Michelle. You are truly too kind.
0: Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.